I'm Coulter DeVries, owner of Ranch Investor Advisory and Brokerage Services. I'm an accredited land consultant with the Realtor Land Institute and proud member of ASFMRA. The Ranch Investor Podcast is the most downloaded and informative industry-specific content that intrigues while entertains. Jeremy Gingrich, thank you for coming down to Billings. Thanks for stopping in. Before we get started with this episode, you have a disclosure to make. I do. Uh, thanks for having me, Coulter. I did want to say that uh, I'm employed by Turner Enterprises. I'm director of ranch operations for the Turner organization. But today for our conversation, I'm represent- representing myself, Jeremy Gingrich, and my interest in all things ranching. You are representing your experience, Jeremy Gingrich, and I will try to keep the questions at that. I won't try not to ask about Turner Enterprises too much, but there's definitely going to be overlap in the discussion because I invited you on because I want to start a bison ranch. Okay. Where do I start? Where do you start? Uh, The first thing, you know, people have asked me that before. And the first thing I tell them is before you buy your first bison, make sure you have the marketing, uh, marketing plan. So you know what you're going to do with them when you start raising them. So kind of sounds like start with the end in mind. Exactly. How work your work your way backwards. Mm-hmm. Well, my marketing plan would be to just sell. I'm so traditional. I'm still an old cattleman, Jeremy. Um, so just sell calves, but bison hunts as well. One bison hunt a week, eight thousand dollars for an old old coal bull. Um, do do most bison producers just sell 600 pound calves or is that is that a fallacy that i'm projecting livestock production onto uh bison that that doesn't translate yeah it, it doesn't translate exactly one of the things is the calves your calves aren't going to be 600 pounds uh they might be 350 400 and so uh, even at, kind of analogous to a cattle producer, the more time that you can spend adding pounds with them, typically the better you're gonna do as a producer. Uh, so in the bison production uh, model, typically things are almost a year behind. You know, if you're, you're breeding two-year-old heifers, not yearling heifers, and so your first, your first calves are gonna come from, a, uh, they're gonna calve as three-year-olds. And so it kind of sets everything back a year uh, on the back end of that, the longevity of your cows can be really long. Uh, you know, 19, 20 year old cows is, is very common. So, uh, you know, a, a typical bison producer might be selling two year old yearlings or two year olds or putting some on feed. And then, you know, there are some uh, wholesalers that are buying fed bison or, you know, buying. Uh, long yearlings to put on feed and, and then that's what's going into the wholesale market. And the, this calf crop, bison calf crop, is 450 pounds is when you're, you're weaning? If you wean, you know, it's, it's another thing that you can, you can rely on kind of the, the adaptiveness of the animal where those cows tend to dry up and they become naturally weaned until you gain the, uh, the benefits of not having a stressful weaning um, calves you could winter with the cows cows are going to dry up and kind of naturally wean themselves and uh it also on the grazing side of things 
you don't have as many herds, you can manage your grazing. Uh, having fewer herds and, you know, giving more recovery periods for your grass as you're grazing. So natural weaning, it takes place with the calf around 500 pounds. <clears throat> because I, I'm, I'm trying to translate it for, as an old cattleman. It seems like a European cow will allow that calf to be on her tit up till 800 pounds. <clears throat> you know, if you let him, the the cows will dry up. <clears throat> so wintertime, you know, you're looking in December, January. Those cows are. They never have much of a bag anyway, so it's really kind of hard to tell if they're wet or dry, but you can tell. They'll they'll dry up the, the calf. You know, if, if you had a cow, a yearling, and a two-year-old, they'll kind of stay in a family group if you have them in that herd. And so you can see them loosely together, but th that calf's not going to be sucking all winter. Uh, so they'll they'll naturally wean during the winter. And when I was referring to like a 350 or 400 pound cow, that'd be if you were weaning in the fall, you know, maybe like you would like a beef producer, October October or November. Uh, but if if you leave them on, you gain that advantage, that kind of social advantage of, especially if if the if it's a heifer calf that's going to turn into one of your replacement heifers, learning from the mother through the winter on how to survive in whatever that environment is, you know, what's, what's okay to eat, uh, where the water is, you gain those advantages by not weaning and allowing that training to happen for the mother. Well, that, that's starting to make sense to me now because continental cattle and, and, uh, Bostaris cattle from, from the United Kingdom, um, for 3000 years, we have selected cattle that will milk better. And what I hear from you is that we don't have 3,000 years of selective breeding in North American bison. So they, their natural cycle to be able to make it through the winter is to dry up earlier. Correct. And we just, as, as animal husbandry domesticators, people who, who produce bison or livestock, we just haven't been selecting uh, replacement heifers out of bison for that many years that we have these full bags through the winter. Right. Okay. That makes, that's right. starting to make sense to me. Right. Um, on now getting with that, you have operated bison ranches from New Mexico to Canada, I assume. Are they all calving about the same time? There's a slight variation depending on latitude. <clears throat> you know, the bulk I would say is, is May and June. And, but depending on latitude, uh, they could calve somewhat earlier, you know, it, an early April calf is an early calf. Uh, typically there's some in April, uh, you know, Montana would be a little bit start of the calving period later than, than New Mexico or even Nebraska. Uh, another one of the nice things uh, about running bison is you don't have to pull the bulls. Uh, bulls, bulls can remain through the herd, again, that reduces your number of herds, kind of that pain of, of pulling bulls and having them stuck somewhere in the bull pasture, which typically causes some some grazing management, some range condition issues. Uh, the bison are cycling on, on nutrition more in line with uh, natural periods like wildlife. And, you know, if, if you've gone to ranching for profit or or look at those those cattle producers that are calving in 
in the summer, that's kind of what bison are doing on their own without having to, to pull the bulls. You typically will have some later calves, um, they'll call red calves, but it's not a significant portion. You might have calves born in July. And, um, they'll be lighter. Um, they can get rolled into the next year's calf crop if, if they are too light. But um, to me, that's another one of the big advantages is you can run, in a lot of ways, you can run a single herd without having uh, detrimental impacts to production and you have a lot of positive impacts on your grazing management. Well, that sounds excellent from a management perspective is you don't have all these different enterprises. You don't have... Uh, heifer development enterprise you don't have a backgrounding enterprise for for steers i i assume you're probably not banding and castrating probably risking getting your neck broke by by being out there screwed around with the bison too much but uh you don't have a bull enterprise where you have to keep the bulls in a separate pasture you have everything mobbed up in one pasture and that that sounds much more efficient and your sounds like natural breeding, natural weaning. Uh, this sounds too good to be true. It's it's pretty good. <laughs> it's it, in some ways. You know, if I were to consider going back to a, a beef operation, I have to think pretty hard about it because of the advantage of, of bison. And you know, there are times and places. I'm not saying you know that model of one mob works everywhere every time. You know, there's times and places to have a yearling herd. Uh, nice thing is you can mix bulls and heifers you can mix bull and heifer yearlings um, you may have a very small percentage of those yearling heifers get bred but it's it's uh, less common so you can mix them or you can run your yearling and two-year-old heifers together if that fits your marketing model you know it depends on uh, how many you have and you know what your marketing looks like uh, the most difficult thing is not getting those two-year-old heifers bred if you're running a single mob so that's where you need to pull them out and run them separately Going back to marketing, are there value-added methods? So with beef cattle, you're you're forced to make the decision, am I going to go GAP, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, NHTC, um, USDA organic? What are, what are the marketing norms for bison when it comes to value-added and... Um, labeling that that product as it goes through the marketing channels another one of the benefits of bison is you know, uh, a consumer a consumer perception that they're all natural you know it's kind of built it's built into the species uh, whether that's really how it is or not um, there's a, a perception that at the outset is is a benefit for the customer and really you know smaller bison producers that develop their own markets they're their own certifier really their, their reputation is their their certifier and their brand and so it's if you're looking at regional you know that that holds a lot of weight i guess the further you get from home you know the less weight that would hold and so in some of the major wholesalers uh they're na they're natural definitely natural uh but beyond that there's not a lot of uh, certification for bison there's there's some american grass-fed uh certified producers is there is there difficulty in marketing your product with with uh beef any day of the week i can haul a coal a calf 
to the market any day of the week. I could consign a lot of calves to be on a video sale and I have a ready liquid market all day, every day. Is that the same for bison? That's definitely not the same for bison. And it, it really comes into play. And, you know, if you look at drought management over the last couple of years, a lot of bison producers needed to destock and you can't take a load of bison cows to the sale barn every week. And so that's where that planning, planning your marketing ahead of time really comes in into play you know there there's wholesalers that that are killing several loads of cows every week but if all the bison bison producers are getting grouted out you know it, it backs it up and so one way around that is to plan i would say any bison producer has to plan more conservatively conservatively with their grout strategy um, you never know when the route's going to end you don't want to try to feed your way through it so you need to stock less conservatively, I think, than you would if you were running beef because you it, just the time to get destocked is a lot longer. I thought it was too good to be true. <laughs> I'm, I'm guessing rather than shoot those animals uh, because you don't have the forage, I'm guessing most people just haul in hay and try to yep. try to feed their way through a problem, yep. which is what the majority of cattlemen do as well. <laughs> uh, they're, they're married to their genetics. So that brings up another question. Will I have to consider who the best bull producers are to bring in superior genetics or genetics that are adapted to my locale, my elevation, <laughs> my, my grass, my ecology? Is there, am I going to have, um, Am I going to have to consider uh, EPDs on bison bulls? You know, just like in in the beef business, there's bison producers with different philosophies producing breeding stock. Um, there's some that are are more emphasizing uh, performance on feed and those kind of bulls. And there's not an EPD system, but you know, it's definitely performance testing on feed, and then there's other producers and <clears throat> Turner ranchers would be one, but there's others out there that emphasize uh, production on prairie and adaptive, you know, adaptive genetics that way. Uh, no performance testing on grain. And so again, I think it comes back just like in, in the registered cattle business reputation and philosophy of the breeder and how they fit your business model to what you want to do. And so you need to seek them out. Uh, look at how they're raising the animals and look at the country and hopefully that, you know, those uh, bison breeding stock producers choose ones that are raising animals the same or a similar environment to your own uh, and your marketing system. You know, the, the goal at Turner Ranches is to to raise those animals with limited amount of input, let bison be bison, let nature be the selector. You know, it goes back to the, if you've read the Lasseter philosophy of cattle raising book written by Tom Lasseter, it's let nature make the selection. You know, sometimes we try to overcomplicate it, uh, whether we're cattle producers or bison producers. But if we step back and let nature make the selection and, and help that along by, you know, accelerating that natural selection process, uh, that gets us the most adapted animals. 
I, I have not, Tom Laster. I, I recognize the name and I do need to look into his work a little more because that philosophy, I think that that aligns with uh, permacultural values. There's a guy, Mark, I forget his name, out of Wisconsin or Minnesota, I believe Wisconsin, but when he's setting up permacultural um, designs, a resiliency on these farms in the Midwest, he just takes every damn seed he can for trees, berry bushes, or sorry, fruit trees, fruit and nut trees, berry bushes. Uh, those are the predominant um, fruits that he's per, uh, perennial fruits, perennial food systems that he's going to be planting out there. And he just throws it all out there uh, in his usually in a swale, a furrow of some sort that's going to retain and capture moisture. But uh, what lives, lives. And that's what was meant to live. That's the one that outcompeted its neighbor, that outcompeted sodbound grass. And his belief, and it seems to be working, if, if that's what you want, I think harvesting would be a challenge. But uh, his, his belief is that the genetics are there to win out. And you just got to let nature do its thing. And that's, that seems to be your management philosophy, your practice as well. It is. Uh, you know, I was, when I first got into ranching, it was soon after I got out of college, and um, I was working for a rancher in southeast Colorado, and we were raising uh, beef masters, registered beef masters, some, some of them uh, Dale Asters at the time, and so that's a philosophy I was kind of trained in. And... Uh, it applied there to beef master cattle. And, and I know they're not the right cattle for everybody everywhere, uh, but in certain places they're, they're fit. And marketing beef masters is, or beef master crosses can also be, um, you know, a challenge to you need to market them right. But bison are a lot the same way in the philosophy behind them. They're already adapted. We don't have to take something that was, you know, a continental breed or, or something from the British Isles and try to adapt them to the semi-arid west. You know, bison are already there. We just got to stay out of the way and not not mess them up. One of my last guests, Sage Askin, he he had mentioned that the the poor cattleman sees a profit about two out of ten years. <laughs> is that the same for bison? Is it is it that hard to make it? You know, I would say the the economics are. Similar, but somewhat disconnected. And the reason I say that is because the customer uh, base, the amount of bison slaughtered in a year, let's, let's for a round number, it's about 100,000. Uh, in the entire U.S.? Yes. 100,000 bison is it? Annually, yeah. That is painfully small. How many cattle or do we kill in a day? Yeah, that, that, I can't believe it's that small. So it's a niche. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's a very small niche, and you start getting into some things like grass-finished bison. It's a niche of a niche. The people, the the customers that are buying bison, they're doing it because they believe in it, they like it, they want the meat, you know, all those reasons. And so it's somewhat disconnected. You know, it's uh, somewhat inelastic. And um, so there's the advantage, uh, or one, one of the advantages, I would say. Um, so... You can be low cost producer and have a higher price, so I would say it's maybe somewhat more consistent uh, based on your your ranching model uh, than beef, where 
I'm not going to throw out a, a number of years in, in 10 that you would be profitable, but I would say it's probably a little more stable in a beef operation. 100,000 killed a year. That just makes me think that you guys at Turner, you could be market manipulators. You could swing the whole market any day of the week you want. <laughs> that also makes me think I should go breed up 200,000 head in the Australian outback and and crush this American market with imports. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's what's happening yeah. with sheep is yeah. imports will will swing that market so rapidly because like you said there's only a certain amount like like you're mentioning for bison sheep is very uh there's not a lot of buyers not a lot of feeders um not a lot of players uh, there is liquidity but uh, it's heavily influenced by imports from australia that, that's uh that would be a challenge with bison I, I mean i'm sure you don't see the cutthroat market manipulation that sheep producers and processors have to deal with and the the oligopoly in the sheep industry or lamb lamb industry but uh which is much like beef uh although the players the oligopoly is not jbs tyson cargill it's guys who are not that big but that sounds like a challenge going forward for bison that it could be concentrated and you as a, if i wanted to be a small guy with 20 head uh on the outskirts of bozeman um this this is a dream for a lot of people and i've come to appreciate this dream of a lot of people they want to move to the gallatin valley and have a small bison farm um it seems like they could be at the at the will of the big boys. You know, I, guess I wouldn't be concerned about that if I were wanting to get into it. One of the, the interesting things about the bison, you know, I hesitate to call it industry because of the size of it. It's, it's yeah. almost a community. Yeah. Okay. Uh, there's kind of everybody's on the same team almost because I know it's, it's, a, it's a small pool and uh, let's learn from each other help each other out. You know, the National Bison Association is a great resource for people who want to get into it. They have an annual meeting, uh, a winter meeting every year in Denver. It's associated with the National Western Stock Show. And they have a trophy, uh, the gold trophy bison sale is there every year. And that's, you know, that's the producers that are that are more, um, you know, performance testing bulls on feed. But there's everybody there. And it's not everybody in the bison industry agrees, you know, how they should be raised necessarily. And, you know, so there's differences of opinion if they should be all grass fed or it's not that big a deal. And it's okay, but everybody's still kind of on the same team. Let's grow the, the bison pool for everybody. Um, your rising tide lifts all boats is, is kind of the philosophy. So it, it's a neat community that way. Um, if you're the person that wants to have 20 head in, you know, in Gallatin County, there's a couple of those around and uh i'm sure they're probably direct marketed you know they're probably sold before the calves hit the ground something like that yeah it wouldn't, it wouldn't be difficult to find a buyer if you're located in the right area yeah th such as bozeman austin and you only had 20 head to market a year like you said those would be sold before before they're even calved out um well of course you guys you establishment characters want to see the industry grow because that's more more control and influence for you as the industry <laughs> grows. You establishment characters 
uh, are only going to benefit. And then you're going to keep you're, you're going to create rules to keep the small guy out. Isn't that how no, that's, capitalism works? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's how that's how oligopoly works. Uh, you know, you know, uh, kind of putting on my Turner hat a little bit. When, when Ted started um, ranching bison, he, he did it because he wanted to save them. You know, let's let's raise bison. Um, the reason Ted's Montana Grill started was to grow the market. Um, in the early 2000s, I remember I was growing up in Colorado, and uh, I, w I wasn't working for Turner. I think I was probably still in college. And massive drought, 2001, 2002. There were some bison producers there. And there were some of them literally giving bison away or shooting them uh, because of drought. And so there was just zero market at that time. And, um, you know, Ted went through that. And, and that was part of the reason for Ted's Montana Grill is to, to get it out there, get people eating bison to save them, you know, from a conservation standpoint. And, and look, looking back at, at my history, I got into ranching from a conservation standpoint. I met some really good people doing cool things. Um, and, I was like, that's that's what I want to do. These people are saving, air, you know, open space, wildlife habitat, clean water, clean air, all these things that ranches, productive, profitable ranches provide for society. That's great. Um, that's why I got into it. You know, and it, I was working cattle ranching for, you know, the first eight years uh, before I ever saw my first bison up close. But uh, back to your oligopoly question, you know, it, Ted's motive was let's get people doing this because it's it's a good thing to do. Let's grow this species. Let's get more of them out there. Let's get people eating it. Let's create a market for it um, because then there's a reason more people have bison. What are some misconceptions about bison? They're dangerous. They're uh, hard to control. You know, it takes a seven foot fence to to keep them in. Uh, those kind of things and you know early on when when there weren't very many people ranching bison now are these misconceptions about the public at large or just a couple neighbors you have public <laughs> at large uh, and, and i think people people knew to bison ranching too you know it's there's kind of that unknown factor oh it's you know am i going to be able to keep them in are they getting it out and early on I think a lot of, well, it was, it was pre, you know, um, emphasis on low stress livestock handling, you know, kind of uh, pre Bud Williams. And now there's people in Montana, uh, Whit Hibbert and other instructors out there that are making everybody, you know, better livestock handlers. And so uh, since that's become more the norm and people are better ha handlers of animals, it doesn't take that much to keep bison in. Uh, you know, back in 2007, eight, I was running some yearling bison behind polywire. Uh, you know, it's kind of a mid-sized polywire that I was using at that time. But you can do that on irrigated meadows. You can hold bison with, you know, I would start with two strands of, of uh, kind of a larger diameter polywire. But it's doable. Uh, permanent fences. Uh, my experience has been electric fence with cattle even before bison. I really like electric fence. I've promised myself I'd never build another barbed wire fence. I've been able to keep that promise to date. Uh, I think I made that to myself probably uh, almost 20 years ago. But if you keep the, 
no matter how strong of a physical barrier you build, if a bison wants to get through it, it can get through it. So it comes down to keeping them satisfied in terms of forage, water, and stress. Um, but if they have those things, <clears throat> then it doesn't take that much to to keep them contained. You know, a lot of the fences that that we build now, a perimeter fence would be a four-wire electric fence. Uh, interior fences, a permanent fence would be a two or a three-wire electric fence, top wire at 40 to 42 inches. So... Uh, what effect, uh, I, you're a conservation guy, what effect does this fencing have on migration corridors? That's definitely something to consider, and, and it's one of the reasons um, that I would emphasize, you know, getting away from the tall, you know, five, six-foot fences because that just impedes uh, wildlife movements. You know, it's kind of easy to raise the bottom wire up to let antelope go through, but you know, a, a five to six foot fence is definitely going to stop elk uh, migration and other animals. Plus, add a whole lot of fence maintenance every year. And so, if you can construct your fences where they keep keep bison in, you know, it's an electric fence is a psychological barrier, and uh, once bison learn it, especially the younger that that you can teach them about electric fence, the better. Uh, and it doesn't take that much to hold them. And then it, you know, a 42 inch high electric fence is really not a barrier for elk. Um, especially if the bottom wire is 20, 22 inches high enough, calves can get under if they need to. And my thought on it, if a bison calf gets under a fence, I'm not too worried about it. It'll come back through, you know, it knows mama's on the other side. Oh, uh, so. Well, those you've addressed some negative misconceptions. What about positive? How about uh, these are disease resistant? There isn't a a treatment you need to give them. Uh, they can fight off any disease. They're going to calve themselves in blizzards. Uh, you don't need to help them along. We as cattlemen help our animals too much through calving. Uh, we treat them too much with antibiotics and antivirals. Um, what are some positive misconceptions that might be out there about bison? Maybe, maybe you're you're uh, able to take a position on what I believe to be true. That is a misconception: is that <clears throat> for regenerative and uh, natural resource management for soil, water, hydrology management, uh, resource management, that bison are inherently superior to cattle. I would say the, the positive misconception is <clears throat> some of the po positive conceptions are, are good, and I'll, I'll probably come back around to those, but some of the positive misconceptions I think are that uh, if you just had one, if you had a ranch and you just had one perimeter fence and you put bison in it, that everything would be fine. It'd be perfect. There'd be no overgrazing, um, and there'd be you know no issues with riparian areas. It, it'd be great. It would require zero human management. That's just a fallacy because there's no ranch that's big enough to allow that. You know, there's there's ranches that have tried that, taken out all the interior fences, had a perimeter fence. And after a few years, started putting them back in because bison will overgraze just like any species because they don't have enough room to migrate. And 
you know, some grazing or recovery periods, we've gotten to where we kind of like to have, for a growing season, <clears throat> grazing, we'd like to have 12 to 13 months before another growing season grazing. And, you know, if you have enough country, you can build that in, or if you don't have enough, and you have to build that in with grazing planning and some pasture divisions, you have to have pastures. <clears throat> and so the idea that bison can't overgraze, or another way to say that, if it's bison overgrazing, it's okay. That's, that's the misconception. <clears throat> What I would say, there's some positive conceptions like just due to bison's natural behavior and how they like to graze, it makes some things easier. Like riparian management where cattle might tend to loaf more in the shade, more around those cool areas. Bison will generally do the opposite. To get them to graze the lower, cooler, wetter areas usually takes um, either some herding or some fencing to do that, You know, especially uh, wetland meadows and like in the sand hills bison will kind of avoid those uh given the opportunity so a riparian area let's say in montana to get out of the bugs the bison would be sitting up on a ridge in the same pasture in the breeze to get out of the bugs and they would just go to the riparian area to drink and then leave and so that's a little bit easier to manage winter feeding i know uh one one issue i've heard uh cattle beef cattle producers having is when they are trying to transition their herd to longer grazing seasons so they're trying to graze further into december um and ideally people would graze all year long graze all year with minimal amount of supplements supplemental feeding not substitutional feeding but one of the big challenges is that when their herd that they are transitioning slowly, painfully, hears the neighbor's tractor fire up in December, they start pushing on the fence. And I would imagine with bison, uh, they are getting out there and grazing more um, just just by their natural desire. What what nature tells them to do is just go, go uh, sniff through the snow, break that snow up with their nose or, or hooves and get out and move around and seek that forage out more. Whereas cattle are like, you've trained me to wait for the hay wagon and it's going to take a lot to break that training. Yeah. One of the, uh, the physiological advantages of bison, um, I'll also back up just a little bit, you know, calving season and affects nutritional demands for those cattle, you know, so when you need to start feeding and what kind of condition they get, need to go in the winter and come out of. Uh, one of bison's physiological advantages is they go catabolic in the wintertime, and so their metabolism slows way down, and their feed consumption slows down, their nutritional demands really back off, and so if they go into winter fleshy, you know, you can expect them to lose, you know, maybe 10% of their, their body weight but they've got that haystack on their back and that's okay for them to consume. They, once they're, they come out of the winter, you know, it's some that metabolism's influenced by photo period, by, by day length. So once they come out of the winter, they start getting longer, metabolism starts ramping up. If they have the forage available, they can, you know, gain that body condition back prior to when they start calving in, in April and May. So uh, while they, you know, they do stay active and grazing and will out go out and forage more in the wintertime that 
the other benefit is they don't need as much nutritional, uh, they don't have as much nutritional demands in the winter. And there's some, some strange things about them, how their protein demands, you know, you're talking about supplemental feeding for cattle. Bison's protein demands are a lot lower than cattle. I've wintered some uh, bison cow herds on forage and it's like 3% protein in the winter, but they're recycling nitrogen through their saliva. And um, the throughput slows way down as well. I've seen some some studies on them where, uh, you know, the throughput might be 36 to 40 hours of forage through them. So they're making a lot more use out of that low quality forage through the winter time. Another benefit in the winter is their the insulative factor of the their hair. And, you know, they have a really dense, thick undercoat. I believe the only thing that is more insulative is yak, uh, yak hair. And so they don't need to increase their feed consumption to generate metabolic heat like, uh, you know, like cattle would. And so there, there's those advantages, too, where you're not, you know, if it's going to be 20 below. Um, some of that feed that you're putting into cattle is just to have them generate enough metabolic heat to stay warm. But with bison, I, I don't remember the factors. This has been a while since I looked at them, but you know, at, at what point their consumption needs to go up to generate that heat, but it's, it's tens of degrees below, you know, like a Hereford cow. Well, let's, let's open up a can of worms here with some bioethics questions. You telling me that, that sounds like a really good opportunity for cattlemen and uh, humans who like to control every variable we can. Um, we like to eliminate variables. Uh, I think we should use CRISPR technology to take some of these positive genes out of bison and, and implement <laughs> them in livestock in, in the continental and British Isle breeds that we have for thousands of years tried to perfect to what we want as an output. Hmm. So, uh, I don't know of anybody that's working on that, but it wouldn't surprise me if somebody is. Uh, you know, that was that was the idea behind some of the people that were breeding uh, beefalo, and you know, across uh, cattle. And it was actually some of those ranchers that actually helped save the species in the late eighteen hundreds. Uh, Charles Goodnight and people like that. Um, I don't know enough about the, the genetic uh, manipulation of, of mammals to speak intelligently about it, but something uh, just about it, uh, would they be bison? Would they be cattle? What would they be? Something about it doesn't feel right? No, it just doesn't feel right to me. <laughs> that, you're, that we are uh, manipulating nature to the best we can. And, and, well, well, so, and creating, uh, once, once it's out there, you can never go back. Right. Well, you know, there's a recent paper that came out that even even the bison in Yellowstone have uh, cattle nuclear DNA in them. I saw so, that. Is that true? That every single bison in North America has cattle, beef, a little bit of DNA in them? Uh, at the nuclear level. Nuclear uh, DNA, yeah. What is that from? You know, I, I should look at that study a little more closely. Um <clears throat> you know, down when there was less than a thousand head in Yellowstone, there were some other bison brought in to supplement what was there. 
And those had been uh, on cattle ranches and probably subject to some interbreeding. And so that's, I think, most likely where those, uh, that cattle nuclear DNA came in. Uh, there is, you know, there's mitochondrial DNA as well that's in a lot of production bison, <clears throat> but it's only passed down to the maternal line. And so it's actually pretty easy to get rid of. Uh, if you test, there, there's some people in the bison industry that are purists. You know, if it if it has any cattle DNA in it, it's, it's not really a bison. And there's other people in the industry that are, if it looks like a bison, sounds like a bison, grazes like a bison, it's a bison. Um, but <clears throat> the one, it, it's pretty easy to fix the mitochondrial DNA. You know, you can go from roughly maybe 10% in a herd over years, you just test all your replacement heifers. If they have cattle mitochondrial DNA in them, take them out, they won't pass it on to their offspring and you can clean out a herd over a number of years. That mitochondrial DNA could affect, uh, you know, there are some studies. One of them was, was done at uh, one of Turner's ranches. The other one was done at Catalina Island, which is an island that has a bison herd off the coast of California. Those were brought in for a movie and just left there, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there's some of those studies that suggest the that... The Catalina wine mixer. <laughs> that, uh, what movie was it? <laughs> I'm not sure. Well, it's an old spaghetti western. Okay. Um, yeah, it was a very old spaghetti western that brought those in. But please go on. I'm sorry to interrupt. No, uh, just that, that bovine DNA in the... Uh, bison genome, um, the mitochondrial DNA may affect its performance uh, negatively. So you wouldn't have hybrid vigor in that case. Mm -hmm. So when I was a freshman in college, Boise State was my university, 2006. I was driving back from Boise to Roberts, Montana, and going through West Yellowstone was the quickest route. And I remember that there was, at that time, there was huge public outcry, and maybe this still happens today. I think it's maybe less in the news, but bison leaving the park, migrating out annually every winter, and I didn't know or care at the time what was going on, but I drove, drove through that area north of the, of the Lamar Valley, and there were people in orange vests and dreadlocks, trying to wave the bison back in, trying to shoo them, herd them mm -hmm. from, from imminent slaughter. Because I, I think part of the controversy at the time was bison who left the park were subject to certain um, requirements. Test and slaughter. Yeah, yeah, test and slaughter. And do you think people could really stop a migration? Like, that's... Now that I look back on it, the intelligence of the hive that is millennia old, those bison leaving the Lamar Valley, and they're going to go find forage somewhere else, better climate somewhere else. Um, that's, that's kind of arrogant of us humans to think that we could, we could change that. Well, where are the bison learning to migrate from? You know, and how many generations does that last? I would think if you trained, if you trained enough generations where those animals are learning from their mothers, you can you can train that migration out of them. You know, anecdotally, I've even heard that applied to elk. Um, 
you know, elk that have been maybe dispersed by wolves or by, you know, a couple of bad winters uh, where they would maybe be able to winter in one location, but two bad winters haven't. And then those, uh, you know, those calves learn from their mothers. And, and I would think maybe it's not that hard to change some of those migratory patterns. So that, that should be something to look into because the last time I was in Yellowstone, uh, again, on the north side of the park, uh, Gardner, down at the Boiling River, it was springtime again, March. This was just a few years ago. And that's when cheatgrass first comes up in Montana. And everything is just vivid green, lush, like Ireland. But that's that's uh, exotic. That's a, yep. That is a pest of a grass species. And I believe that Yellowstone, granted it's the arid west, and we're going to struggle with invasive weeds throughout the entire west but i believe part of that problem that a lot of people don't see they see they just see pretty green when they're traveling down the uh gardner river towards mammoth hot springs uh it's just pretty green to them but to me it's cheatgrass and i think that's from overgrazing bison yeah i i think i i would I agree with that. Like, should we put up some five wire fence in Yellowstone <laughs> and, and paddocks, you know, have some rotational controlled grazing? Do we need some anthropomorphic intervention in Yellowstone? Hey, everybody, real quick. If you remember how you heard about this show, it was probably from seeing somebody post on Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn, or one of your friends might have told you about it. We don't run ads, as you may have noticed. Uh, So we just ask that you repost an episode if you like it or tell a friend about us. As always, thank you for your support. I I do need to hear your feedback. I want to know what you're into, what you like, so I can bring on more of that type of guest and content. Now back to the show. Thanks. So I would say, you know, as a ranch manager, I've had the same thoughts when I went through um, Yellowstone at times that you know, if this were a ranch, you know, we would be chastised by our neighbors and uh, probably whatever agencies uh, we were beholding to if, if it was lease land. And so, uh, overgrazing and erosion. Gosh, there's a lot of erosion yeah, and a lot of erosion. You know, you know, National Park Service units. They're they're not ranches, and it is one of those difficult questions. Okay, what what is the most appropriate thing for? Uh, the managers there to do and and the tool that they have I'll, I'll say because it's not big enough yellowstone's not big enough uh, to allow nature unfettered i guess uh, you know that that time has has passed us um and because they can't migrate out i think the one tool that the park service has now is population control they're not going to. Uh, they're not going to put in, in fences. You know, it's also something that's remarkable when you drive through there. You know, you're used. I'm used to seeing fences everywhere, and it's one thing I do notice. Oh, there's no fences, and so that that stands out to me as a ranch manager as well. But uh, you know, there's valid concerns for neighboring ranches around the park for bison migrating out and the potential spread of brucellosis. But if you track the brucellosis back, it's it's an elk, really an elk issue, transmitting to bison. Um, Says the bison guy, pointing fingers at yeah. some other species. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, 
you, you know, I, I kind of appreciate the the predicament that the park service is in there. Uh, if you look back, it, I'll relate it back to elk management and um, wolf reintroduction. You know, I think there's some conflicting studies on if it's that was a behavioral change where you see more um, willow re regeneration now in some of the riparian areas in Yellowstone if it was behavioral or if it was just strictly population. And I think it's the research shows it's probably more strongly correlated with reduction in the elk population than behavioral change. The, the Park Service was working on that northern elk herd for years prior to wolf reintroduction and after that combined, you know, there was a lot of heavy hunting on the Montana side. That combined with wolf reintroduction reduced the elk population to a level where you saw more riparian regeneration. Um, elk are probably a lot more uh, flexible in their habitat choices than bison, um, where bison prefer more open grasslands. Elk probably uh, diversify a little bit. So maybe that means that the park is still way overstocked on bison. I, that's just from reading the landscape, I guess, and not uh, park service management goals. Well, and, and another option, um, what's your opinion? Should, should the bison and elk have the right to migrate north through Gardner onto private ranches that leave gates open and consume, what does a bison consume? 30 pounds a day of forage? Yeah, roughly. Should should the private landowner uh, be responsible for providing that public good? So we've now moved from discussing bison as livestock to bison as wildlife. Ah, yes. And that's the big issue in Montana today, isn't it? Is with the APR, who is being opposed by cattlemen groups, and then I think you bring in the CKST water compact, and I don't want to get too nuanced into that. But part of the group, part of the fight with Farm Bureau, Montana Stock Growers, Farmers Union was okay, if we do this water compact and we return the bison to the Salish, Kootenai, Flathead tribes, um, and that range, the, the, the many, many sections of land that they were. Uh, that was negotiated in that settlement with along with the tribes of east of the divide the prairie tribes are bison wildlife or livestock and you bring up a good point where, where do you stand on that where i stand on it is is they can be both uh, the ones in the park are obviously held in the public trust i mean those are those are the publics uh, but the ones on bison ranches are livestock uh, it's it's the same with elk as well. You know, there are, I think, still a couple of grandfathered elk ranches in Montana, if I'm not mistaken, but there used to be a lot more. And so uh, from state to state and other states, there um, elk are both livestock and wildlife. So to your question about should bison be allowed to migrate out, um, of the park across ranches, I, I think I would leave that to those individual landowners. Uh, you know, wildlife can be a burden in, in various ways, and one of the ways that, at least in our system in the North American model wildlife management, one of the ways that landowners can 
overcome that burden is through something like hunting, uh, outfitting. Um, you know, there would be a burden if a landowner didn't want bison on their property coming out of the park that they'd have to fence them or enter into some kind of agreement with, in that case, it'd be Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks because those are wildlife. And when they're in Montana, they're they're managed by the state of Montana. So um, I, I wouldn't view that specific case with bison is any different than, you know, uh, elk depredation, you know, getting into your haystacks or uh, grazing your winter range. And so it's, to me, it's kind of a similar issue. It's not an easy issue, but it's a wildlife issue at that point. Yeah. And, and now you're making me think of kind of social implications. I think we, uh, we're at this crossroads uh, where everything is so politicized and tribal, uh, tribal and political camps, not not Native American tribal. Um, <clears throat> we we have the American bison, which is for many years has been a symbol of freedom, and it's been a symbol of, I would say, uh, power, uh, manifest destiny. It's been a symbol of conquering the West. It's been a symbol of uh, maybe fighting back from the brink of destruction. It's the American bison has been very symbolic. And I think for a large swath of people, conservative, not conservative country, urban, it's been kind of a cherished symbol that it's, it's been a very, it's a national mammal. Yeah. It's a national mammal. It's been, it's been appreciated, but now with APR and I'd love to have APR on here to discuss this further. Uh, and maybe even with BHA and some of their views about backcountry hunters and anglers, some of their views about right to roam and the public good that wildlife is and how potentially private landowners, private property rights should be foregone in the name of the public good. Uh, it, it's unfortunate, and I'm just, I'll just say it's unfortunate to see this beautiful animal become a point of political contention and and vilified and now it's like if you if you want to produce bison you're a weirdo you're you're kind of a greenie uh what are you one of them what are you a conservation group you're you're kind of a a, uh out there you're an outcast you're not a capitalist you're not a conservation land manager natural resource manager why would you say there's that perception I think because the from and this is just going back to my spheres of influence, my network is there's this purist that it's either cattle and you belong to cattlemen groups that uh, the self-serving interest is for uh, the livestock, the beef industry that we have invested so much into with the Department of Agriculture, with biosecurity uh with our state veterinary services that it's industry driven we have to we have to protect big industry and and we're going to do that by vilifying bison so i'll i'll say the way the way i look at it personally is uh, if we're land managers at whatever scale that is um we have the resources that come in we have sunlight we have soils we have water we have the forages and we have to turn that into something useful for people. 
to create some kind of economic uh, unit that can be sold. To me, that can be cattle, that can be sheep, that can be bison. What's what's the most? Any of them are valid in in my standpoint. Uh, what's the most efficient? Depends on how you measure that efficiency. But uh, bison are a way to to do it. With there are definitely a lower input way to do it. Uh, maybe longer. So I guess I I don't see any as being more valid than the other because of the the reasons you said that bison do have the uh, the cultural value that they do uh, and you know in, in some cultures very very high cultural value uh, then uh, I kind of lean towards them I, I like that idea of it and being a native species too if we can if we can turn sunlight into dollars using a native species and human creativity, I think that's cool. I agree. And I, I don't want to see a stigma attached to bison. Um, <clears throat> I brought you on because I think there's legitimate profits to be made. I think entrepreneurial, entrepreneurially, a lot of people should be looking at bison, especially when uh, right now with $1,200 calves, beef calves, beef, uh, that market is so cyclical and I am part of the group of people who believe that it is influenced by the big four packers. I think there is market manipulation in the beef industry. And why would you want to subject yourself to that, to, uh, a very, one of the world's largest corporations, Cargill, which is private. You, we don't get to see their books, but then the other large corporations, Tyson, and JBS that are publicly traded, uh, there is crony capitalism. There is influence on the United States. In my opinion, I'm gonna I'm going to assert this as a uh, as a tinfoil hat conspiracy theorist that there's a revolving door at the USDA and the FDA for JBS, Cargill, and Tyson employees. And why would you want to? Why would you want to be part of that? So I, I, I hope people critically look. Are you suggesting there's an agricultural uh, congressional complex? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Uh, do you want to get into the military industrial complex, Jeremy? <laughs> or the pharmaceutical complex? Yes. And so, I mean, if, if all we can do is keep our own side of the street clean, if all we can do is take care of what's in front of us right here and present each day, wake up and say, how am I going to make the best day, make this the best day for myself and my family? And if you're, if, like you said, if you're into converting solar energy into protein, I really think people should be considering bison. And, and, uh, let's, let's try not to have this stigma that they are going to destroy the private property rights of, of others, that they are going to destroy the beef industry that we have invested so much in. You know, I, I think there's some of that that's, it's fear of the unknown uh, for cattle producers. They haven't they haven't been around bison producers, you know, and you know, I'm familiar with the APR situation in, in central Montana. And uh, if that's all that, you know, a cattle rancher knows, I can see how they would be highly negative. Um, but I would also, if somebody's considering bison, uh, 
they should maybe talk to some neighbors of some bison operations, you know, that, that are ranching, you know, ranching bison um, as a for-profit business. And, you know, I know cattle ranchers have both. Um, you know, they have a small bison herd because they like them. They think they're cool and, you know, it's not their core business, but, but they like him. And, uh, you know, Dan O'Brien, he wrote a book called Buffalo for the Broken Heart. And it's about his, <clears throat> him converting a ranch, the ranch he still has in South Dakota from cattle to bison and kind of why he did it now he did it. And, and they run Wild Idea uh, Buffalo Company now that's a, a pasture harvested uh, direct to, to consumer uh, bison company. Been very successful. Um, <clears throat> so there's examples out there. And yeah, I don't think they're mutually exclusive. To me, it's we're ranchers. You know, we're, we're uh, taking care of the land and producing a, a living from it. And whatever species you choose to do that with, uh, and back to the, to the, to the private property rights idea, if, uh, you know, you're doing that on, on your place. That's cool. Don't negatively affect, uh, you know, your neighbors by what you're doing on your place. And, uh, Yeah, I don't think there needs to be that uh, that kind of stigma uh, around bison ranching. Should ranchers who overgraze and farmers who fallow crop, should they be fine then if you shouldn't negatively affect your neighbors with your private property practices? Good question. Um, so how would... Because they are. They definitively are negatively affecting their neighbors when you overgraze and when you fallow crop. Uh, you're talking about a property value decrease or a, um, you know, protective capacity, uh, negative impact. For example, overgrazing, how does overgrazing your neighbor overgrazing affect you? If you're not. My neighbor overgrazing negatively affects me because we have to bail his ass out all the time with, with, uh, government programs or as cattle are crawling through the fence always absolutely yeah that that's probably pushing on the fence but i i think the bigger issue is that we reward bad behaviors with uh farm programs we keep we keep poor operators going longer what about the renewable fuel standard that uh leads to a lot of overproduction of commodity crops that we don't need the renewable fuel standard that uh, set a minimum amount of ethanol that that encouraged farmers to go plant corn on on soils that would best be in pasture, and it, it drove well, and it did that because it drove the price of corn up from three fifty a bushel to five dollars a bushel. Um, yeah, I, th I think that's that's also. Uh, you screwing your neighbor <laughs> by supporting that, by supporting yeah. the renewable fuel standard for ethanol, you are screwing your neighbor because you're making him pay for that subsidy. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, back to uh, how, how does overgrazing or fallow affect you? You know, I can see there's the negative in your question was, should we find them? Uh, you know, from a libertarian standpoint, it's, how how do you how would you account f 
for those negative impacts and and mitigate them. Um, I don't know what mechanism there, what market mechanism there is to to do that. Force compliance, nothing voluntary, nothing yeah. voluntary, Jeremy. Uh, but I I want to get into your story personally before we go off on the tangent of Coulter is continually a blowhard libertarian on this program. <laughs> uh, let's talk about how did you come to you brought up. Um, Ranching for profit. You've you've studied all the consultants. You were in Colorado studying uh, livestock ranch management. Um, you you follow the gurus. How did you come to this path, this career choice? You said you'd brought a book with you today that kind of influenced and helped shape your shape your future at the time. Was there an aha moment? Was there a revelation or an existential crisis going on? You don't have to share that any existential crisis in your life, but what is your story? What what path brought you to my my podcast today? Yeah, thanks, Coulter. Um, definitely was an aha moment, and I'll get to that. You know, I was <clears throat> raised in uh, in Colorado, Front Range of Colorado, kind of halfway between Colorado Springs and Denver. I'm born on a, a small farm in Central Illinois, uh, but moved to Colorado when I was young. My my dad and his two brothers were butchers and uh, farmed when we were still in Illinois. But growing up, you know, I saw what used to be, you know, Castle Rock, Colorado used to be a cow town, you know, when I was a kid. And <clears throat> it is far from a cow town now. Um, but if you look at it, I would say Montana, you know, the I-90 corridor is probably about 25 years behind Colorado, behind the I-25 corridor. 25 or 30 years and I saw all the lands and and rent which was ranches and while I've kind of disappeared between my elementary school years and college years and just was kind of heartbroken about that you know that that connection land maybe it started growing up on a farm and and playing outside and in the woods and stuff as much as possible but uh, went to Colorado State University and I first started studying mechanical engineering a year and a half of that and just because that's kind of how my mind works and <clears throat> decided this is not what I want to do um, and so I started a natural resources management degree and after a couple two and a half years of that I was like you know what this is training me to do is work for an agency and I don't want to work for an agency uh, I want to be in the private sector and got to my my junior year of college and Still didn't know what I wanted to do, wanted to do, but I was on a wildlife ecology course, and the professor said, "If if any of you want to go to this conference, it's put on by the Colorado uh, Collegiate Cattlewomen's Association. It's called Voices of the West: Solutions Through Community." And he's like, "You can, I'll give you excuse you out of the class." So I went to that, and there was a panel of ranchers and environmentalists there talking about cooperating and doing good stuff together, and. Uh, the, the book that I brought is called Beyond the Range Conflict. It was written by Dan Daggett, who used to be a, you know, an anti-grazing Sierra Club activist, but now he's writing books about the good work that ranchers are doing for conservation. And, uh, you know, one of the examples in there is uh, the Bill, Bill Milton's ranch. Bill Milton's featured in there. He, he ranches up uh, around Grass Range. He'll be coming on the podcast pretty Great. soon. Great. Um, another one featured in there, and they were at the conferences, um, the pitch 
fork ranch, the Turnells in, in central Wyoming, where they found, you know, the last remnant wild population of black-footed ferrets. And I just saw that and I was like, that's what I want to do. Like, it was the switch flipped. And then after that, there was just this serendipitous series of events that happened. You know, I went to a, a friend I grew up with high school, his cousin's dad is also featured in their uh, goose sausage. And he, he owned a ranch at the time called the Stirrup Ranch in central Colorado. And so I went out there and, uh, you know, kind of doing college things, going on, just enjoying a ranch on, on the weekend. And um, I'm flipping through the bookshelf and uh, Goose Gossage's sister was really involved in holistic management. So she had some holistic management books and I started flipping through those and just all this stuff kept happening. And uh, uh, read Small is, Small is Beautiful and uh, Unsettling of America by uh, Wendell Berry. You know, those books are on the shelf and they practically fell off the shelf into my lap and just all this stuff kept happening. And uh, so I knew this was it. <clears throat> and uh, my dad was still a butcher in the meat business. And, you know, I got out of college and worked my first summer as a seasonal forester for a little while and kind of worked as a ranch hand on a horse ranch. And, and then my dad um, was selling grass grass-fed beef for Dale Laster and Last, Laster grass, Grasslands Beef. And <clears throat> so I just found out, <clears throat> excuse me, that uh, the uh, operations manager for Dale Laster got a lease on a 87,000-acre ranch owned by the state of Colorado, got a 25-year lease on it. And so I got in touch with Dale Laster through my dad and just said, you know, I, this is what I want to do, get into ranching. And I was, I was green, you know. And uh, he invited me down for lunch, and and he put me in touch with a man named Duke Phillips. Um, oh yeah, he manages the Nature Conservancy, the big big the Madnozapata. Yeah, uh, for for the Nature Conservancy. But Duke had gotten the twenty five year lease on the, it was it's the Chico Basin Ranch, and that was nineteen ninety nine. So it's almost up, but uh, he he needed some people to work for him, and he needed some apprentices. And I was I was green. I was an apprentice, and so I talked to Duke and um, ended up moving to the ranch. I was the first person to move on before uh, we had started receiving any cattle. And I, I learned pretty quick, you know, the first for six days, I was horseback all day. Every day we were uh, receiving cattle and moving them to all different parts of the ranch. And after the second day of, of that, I could barely walk um, being horseback every day after, you know, all day, every day. And after the fifth day, I'd kind of ridden the soreness out and, um, you know, learned a lot from Duke on how to handle cattle and that, that kind of the holistic management base. I mean, that's where I got into Alan Savory and, and holistic management and, and that kind of planned grazing and, and had some good mentors and some good exposure. A lot of people through that, um, uh, and you know, brought me to Montana and I had, um, the opportunity to work for, you know, in a, in a lot of ways, um, ranch owners that were non-traditional owners. I mean, more amenity type owners, but, you know, we ran the, the op cattle operations as for-profit businesses to achieve, but also use them to achieve conservation goals. You know, for example, the Sun Ranch in the, in the upper Madison, I uh, was a foreman there for three years and it, it had an easement on it for core elk winter range in the Madison. And so, um, uh, 
after some years of non-use or, or little use with cattle, the elk stopped using it. And they started going to, you know, the more, more traditional uh, ranch owners who couldn't afford to feed elk uh, all winter. And so um, we learned that we needed to graze that forage to keep it uh, keep the quality up so the elk would stay on the ranch in the winter. You know, we were seasonal grazing operation and uh, grazing and outfitting about six month cattle operation and outfitting. And so, uh, you know, kind of always combine that ecological thought with production agriculture. Uh, wasn't always easy. Uh, you know, definitely competing values when uh, there, there's another book that was written by a friend of mine who worked a summer at at the ranch uh, called Bad Luck Way, and it's about a summer of living with wolves on the Sun Ranch, and uh, it's not easy. Um, I didn't sleep much that summer, <laughs> and uh, you know you have these you have competing values in that case where you have a ranch owner that um, you know loves wolves. There's a uh, wolf den on the ranch, a wolf pack on the ranch. You have a cattle owner because we were custom grading cattle, and who um, you know what he cares about is pounds of gain. And when when you have kind of ongoing conflicts with wolves over a summer, and the pounds again aren't there, then the cattle owner is not happy. And uh, so it's it's a difficult balance to keep you know both both sides of that uh, ha- happy and being in the middle of it is difficult. Uh, don't know if that how far down the road you wanted to go with that, but uh, no, that's that's excellent. That, so at uh, this point in the podcast. I should include a follow-up from Jeremy. He reached out and emailed me and said there's a few other things he would like to have included uh, in this discussion that just racked his mind as he was driving back home to the Bozeman area after we recorded this. So I'm I'm just going to go through it right here. Uh, Regarding bison, they really function a lot like eared or indicus cross cattle. They are great mothers, they are incredibly agile, they are pretty smart and have long memories, and they have a strong herd instinct and travel well. They can have a large flight zone once you start working with them, but the better you handle them and the more they trust you and that you want what is best for them, they get really fun to handle. A lot of times, you only get one chance to do things right with them. So you want to make it their idea of work. If I had thought of it when talking about Chico Basin, I would have brought up the similarities between bison and eared cattle. We had just taken over the ranch, Chico Basin, I believe that is, And we're receiving cattle to custom graze from a few customers. One of the herds I was responsible for was 600 head approximately of Brahma cross cows that our pasture customer was buying from droughted out herds in Texas circa 1999. When they arrived, they were wild as shit. If they could see you on a horse, they were on the run, no matter if you were half a mile or more away. This was in eastern Colorado, sand sage country, deep sand. I learned how to sneak through the hills and make a wide circle to approach them. I also learned the technique of a lead rider 
it was helpful to have a rider in front of the herd to keep them throttled back a little and steer from the front if needed. After a couple years of handling them well, they settled down more and you didn't need the lead rider as much. When we weaned, we would trail the whole herd seven to eight miles from their area of the ranch to the headquarter trap in one day. We would wean the calves and the next day practically just turn the cows loose and open up the gates ahead of them and they would go back home on their own. They would not hang around the corrals and ball like English or Continentals. They were a calico colored herd of red and black Brangus, Brayford, Brindles. The owner had used Charlet bulls on them and most of the calves came out creamy or a little smoky. I found coyotes that the cows had killed around water tanks. I had a lot of respect for these cows. So it sounds like uh, bison are much like long-eared cattle, or maybe long-eared cattle are somewhere in the middle of uh, domestic continentals and bison. But thanks for, uh, thanks for Jeremy for sending that in after the recording. Now back to the show. That fits with a lot of um, more progressive type managers, thought leaders that we've had on through the podcast. I've, it's hard to get excited about traditional, conventional. And as you said, there's, there's conflict, there's conflicting values. And I'm not talking down on the old value of, I'm just going to operate this the way my family has and that it's part of our legacy. It's my identity. Like I take no, uh, position on that, but it just doesn't excite me. What I like to hear is, is your story about how do you work with wolves and grizzly bears and how do you set up a new bison ranch when you know that there's going to be conflicts? Uh, no one's going to be too pissed off if you start a yearling opera, uh, stalker operation next to you. No one's going to be too mad if um, you are trying to, if you're, you're feeding your cows all year long and you're not really trying to push them uh, through the winter and they they might get a little pushy on the fences. No one's going to be too mad if you bring in a red bull to breed your black cows. <laughs> like that's, <laughs> uh, I, I like hearing about the more alternative um, holistic. How do, how do we make this work together? Cause because wolves are part of uh, beautiful nature around us. They're, they shouldn't be removed from this ecosystem. Humans, since they crossed the Bering Straits, the Bering Flats, we've already killed too many species. Um, and it wasn't the Ice Age, it was, it was the humans. <laughs> uh, people don't like to talk about that when they, when they bring up uh, indigenous the tribes and, and there's kind of this sense of entitlement. I won't get into that, but we have killed a lot of species. We've, mm -hmm. we've forced many into extinction. And I think we'll, we are a intelligent species. So let's figure out a way to make it work. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a place for wolves and grizzly bears and bison. And, and there's a place for ranchers too. I and mean, there's a place for people on the landscape and, and uh, working landscapes out there, you know, working landscapes keep, keep open lands open for all kinds of other values that they provide for society. You know, I, I think I listed some earlier, but, um, so, you know, if, if, 
I, I was involved with the group for a long time to the Quivira Coalition, and uh, they're not featured in, in that book, but it was it was based or it is based in New Mexico, but it was started by uh, again a Sierra Club uh, anti person that was anti grazing at the time and a rancher in New Mexico, <clears throat> and it was there's common ground that we have. We both want to see healthy lands. And, you know, it was kind of at the height of the range wars, probably in the the early nineties when they started this. And it's like, we're just, we're done with it. Let's create the radical center where um, <clears throat> let's find win-wins where we can, where we have similar values and kind of let the others just ignore the other stuff. Um, and that's where I think it needs to be. I mean, if, if somebody is, is um, you know, a, a wolf advocate, but doesn't um, consider the validity of raising livestock in, especially on private lands, in you know in the West, then they need to come to the middle more. You know, you talked about I think earlier um, not being on the extremes, and you know there there can be cooperation and. Um, I think we need to move, you know, conflict management. There's uh, something I read recently. We need to move from position to interests. And, you know, if somebody's just stuck in their position at both ends, not, it's going to stay that way or get worse. But if you can move to interest, you know, from the ranching side, what's the interest? Well, to have a, uh, a profitable business where I can raise my family and have a, an acceptable quality of life and the the other side as well, we want to have wolves be able to live, or let's say all the native species uh, be able to live in this environment. You know, those are interests, and there's a whole lot of overlap there. Because I don't want to say what those positions are, because I don't know what they are, to be honest. And, and it's more I'm I have those those common interests I just laid out. That's that's interest. I think most people can agree on those. Well, I appreciate you coming on. This is uh, hopefully this has given our listeners a lot to uh to chew on what are some of the books you've mentioned beyond the rangeland conflict by dan daggett um <clears throat> you mentioned wendell berry i loved jaber crow that that was a great book my wife bought me uh yeah he wendell <laughs> berry does he does shit on the conventional farmer though <laughs> he, he's not afraid to like but he he does it in in a poetic manner in a in his in jaber crow yeah it was all about talking shit about that conventional farmer <laughs> but uh what other books um have really influenced your management philosophy or or you talked about um conflict resolution what other your professional philosophy um family what uh, what other books are inspiring to you for because thinking holistically it's hard to separate profession family. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you just kind of teed one up there, holistic management by Alan Savory and Jody Butterfield. And that's a good one. Uh, 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 Wendell Berry. I haven't read his, his fiction books, but you know, a lot of his nonfiction essays, uh, uh, one of his books, a collection of essays is called sex economy, freedom and community. That's a good collection of, hmm. of his essays. I'll check that one out. Yep. Um, uh, you know, some publications like the Stockman Grass Farmer. I mean, there's always good stuff in there. 
Um, Alan Nation. Yep. And uh, now it's Joel Salatin. Joel Salatin. Yeah. He Alan bought Nation that. passed away. Yep. Um, Alan Nation's book, Knowledge Rich Ranching. You know, you can apply that to uh, bison or or uh, cattle. Um, on the leadership side of things, you know, Jocko and uh, Will Inc. and Leif Babin, um, Extreme Ownership and the Dichotomy of Leadership. I just read Extreme Ownership by Jocko. Yeah, that was yeah. excellent. Um, the the next book's even more important book, I think, The Dichotomy of Leadership. Okay. It's, it's that hitting that that idea of balance uh, where you need to be. Uh, Stephen Covey, Seven Habits. Oh, yes. It's, it's a good book. I think we hit on some of that stuff here. So those and Dan Daggett has a newer book. Um, it's 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 not new. It's probably seven eight years old. But it's called Gardeners of Eden, and it's that idea that uh, you know humans have manipulated their environment for good for millennia, and so he, you know he looks back in, into the kind of prehistory of of that and it's it's pretty interesting and they're easy i mean they're picture books kind of they're kind of coffee table books that uh that you can thumb through and get a lot out of all right before we go i we're going to get into another 20 minute conversation here i got a question for you uh there's there's a lot of people believe that there is this utopian purist uh ecosystem out there that Maybe Yellowstone or the Arctic are the closest thing to an undisturbed, uh, unaffected, has no anthropomorphic effect. That there are these ecosystems that are pure of humans' impurities. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Because my, my belief is, well, no, there isn't a corner of the world that has been unaffected by humans every 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 ecosystem has some sort of anthropomorphic influence happening to it it could be the deepest parts of the amazon it could be the arctic serengeti the serengeti and and then getting back to and it's an it's terribly unfortunate to see the everglades have these invasive species such as pythons and like iguana things and different different animals that should not be in the Everglades are taking over the Everglades. And that's happening everywhere all over the world. It seems like there's there's uh, invasive species, especially at the plant level, plant-based level. Um, however, I mean, I don't want to see pythons in the Everglades, but we have to understand that diversity is always going to happen. There's always a continuum of diversity of changing adapting evolve my my belief is jeremy uh there's always a continuum of changing adapting evolving species diversity is a good thing um and yeah we, we have we have pheasants here in montana i love hunting pheasants uh they're kind of just a, a natural natural animal here now they don't need any management they've they've fit they found their place I hope they're not taking away from the natural sharp tails. They might be, but they might also be providing to the natural fox. What are your thoughts on this, uh, this purest utopian ecology? Because it sounds like you're trying to work uh, ranching into a, a more natural system. What is that natural system and what are your thoughts on it being 
pure and unaffected by humans? Well, at the base of that question, I think you need to move beyond the position that human influence on their environment is invalid. Uh, you know that if if we're looking at a if we're looking at a, a pasture, I won't call it pasture. If we're looking at rangelands, and one is obviously unhealthy with uh, lots of bare ground, and just across the fence from that is a, a, some rangelands that has uh, reproductive plants. And if if the values based is is one affected by uh, humans and livestock and one not, you know which one's better? Well, the one that's in better condition, actual objective rangeland condition, probably has human influence and livestock on it, and the one that is in poorer condition has none. So you have to move beyond you know just that that value statement of human influence is is always bad. It can be either. Uh, and I think what we need to emphasize and always trying to work on is making our whatever we do, making things better. And I know that's not easy. It's kind of, it's easy to say that as a platitude, but, um, and it comes down to, to goals, you know, uh, from a societal view, you know, getting common goals, that's, that's really difficult. Um, if you can, can pare it down, uh, to a more manageable level or sphere of influence is either to get to goals, but let's take, you know, for example, prairie dogs, let's say prairie dogs on a ranch. Um, well, prairie dogs have a place there. Um, they have an ecological function that can be beneficial to a rancher, but they also have a, a detrimental effect to their pocketbook. So what's the proper decision and management action for prairie dogs? Well, you have to ask that the, the vested parties in that, well, what are their goals? I think, and, um, if the, the goal is maximization of forage or maximization of profit, you'll take certain steps to do that, which might not be a positive influence um, on the whole ecological picture. But if the goal is I want to work within nature, I want to promote biological diversity, because in the long run, that's probably going to make my ranch more resilient. Um, I would probably take different actions. Uh, and it also gets to scale. You know, if if you have a five thousand acre ranch and it's a thousand acres of prairie dogs, that's a big deal. Um, and you know, versus the bigger picture. So, can we get to, as a society, a place on this paradox of nature versus industry? Can we get to a place where nature is the winner that we are we have industry but nature is winning that we keep our industry we keep our big dairies that give coulter really cheap delicious cheese because i love cheese and i and i like three dollar milk too but can we get there by by serving nature can we keep industry and uh furthermore can we get there with private property rights and capitalism or is that going to interfere with having a robust ecology, having a robust ecosystem? I would say given the current rate and trajectory, I think we need to change some things. Um, leading toward more kind of regionalization of economies. If, if you were to look at 
the the large dairies that are providing you the the three dollar gallon of milk, do you think the three dollars is paying for the true cost of that production and all the externalities? No, no, I th- someone's bearing bearing it, but we're all bearing it a little bit, yeah. just like a tax. Where we all just a couple cents here and there. So I, I think we can, you know, I would I would want to measure success on on the let's to take that dairy example further. Okay, what's what's the soils on on all all the lands that provided that milk to you? Are they getting better or are they getting worse? Um, I think that's one way to measure it. Uh, uh, probably the price tag of the grocery store is not covering that, but I think we can make it that way. And I'm, you know, I'm not a dairyman, and I'm not going to say that that's easy because I, it's not. But there are people that are doing it. But that's um, they're doing it at a scale that's probably more regional and more of a human scale than a global or even national scale. Uh, you know. Uh, and I, I think that's where things are going to trend. And you, you see positive Im- impacts, you know, with more regional meat processing coming up. Uh, one of the challenges for Montana is we have a lot more protective capacity probably than we have market base. So we're always going to be exporters, um, you know, a, a colony of sorts. Uh, that's just a factor of population density. And so I, I think we'll move that way. It's it's not going to be overnight, but I think, uh, you know, going through the challenges of the, uh, I'm not going to say the challenges of COVID, but I'll say that the response to COVID, going through those challenges, uh, have made some people realize that there's some things we probably need to do differently. And I think it will will come out better, uh, more resilient. So... It has to break before we, before we address it. Yeah, I mean, a, a lot of times, pe- it's human nature not to change until there's enough pain to make them change. Well, if the fridge isn't broke, Jeremy, don't fix it. I guess is 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 the uh, status quo of of how we organize as a society. Yep, but you know, I, I've uh, I've kind of made a concerted effort in the last year to go to a lot more. Uh, conferences and, and they've been in Montana and just the amount of people on the land that are doing good things and providing good food, good, healthy food and fiber for their communities. And, you know, that community scale uh, varies somewhat, but, and making the land better, providing a good quality of life for their family. And, and I, that's not necessarily standard of living. In some cases they're, they're sacrificing standard of living for a quality of life that, that they want is encouraging. Um, the amount of young people that want to get into agriculture um, is encouraging. And a lot of them are not from agriculture. And so there's, there's this kind of influx and interest of people wanting to do, do the right thing uh, for people and the land and it, it's encouraging. And I, again, yeah, it's easy to say platitudes and things like that. It's not easy. It's going to take a lot of work, but there's a lot of people in this country that need good work and, um, something, something good and positive to do. And, and agriculture at, at a human scale provides that. Absolutely. 
Well, thank you for coming on. Uh, that was an excellent couple hours almost. We're going to get two episodes out of this. Um, appreciate it. If anyone has any questions for you, um, if they want to reach out and and uh, tell you how much they enjoyed the episode, are you on social media? or? Uh, you can probably the best way to find me is on LinkedIn. LinkedIn. Okay. Yep, Jeremy Gingrich. <clears throat> So please, please find Jeremy on LinkedIn if you have any thoughts, questions, feedback. And uh, we don't do any advertisements on this. So my ask of you is to review this and give me your feedback. Please uh, please let me know what you like. Uh, we're trying to figure out what, what people enjoy more. Is it finance? Is it economics? Is it Coulter's libertarian rants? Uh, is it regenerative agriculture? Um, anything, please let me know what you like or dislike about this podcast. And that really helps me tailor who I can bring on as a, as a guest. And thanks for tuning into the ranch investor and hope you invest in this bison ranch. I'm going to put together with, with, uh, the help of Jeremy and, and Jeremy's predecessor, another Turner enterprise gentleman, John Hansen, go look up that episode. If you're really into bison production, John Hansen, former, uh, Turner enterprises, uh, he was replaced well, or, or Jeremy filled his shoes some, somewhere in the, in Bozeman, the Turner office, uh, those two had a role. So thanks for tuning in ranch investor podcast. Thanks, Jeremy. Click subscribe on your streaming platform. So, you know, when the latest episode has dropped, be the source of knowledge and the maven that other professionals are excited to refer.